recording. I think when it says starting recording, it has started recording, but I guess we'll see. Ah, okay. We are back. Welcome everyone to, uh, we have returned to China. We were last in China for the end of the Boxer Rebellion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now we are back for the 1911 revolution, which has a lot in common with the other, I, I don't want to say lackluster revolutions uh, that we've been covering. Uh, Persia, Turkey, Portugal. Par- partially successful. Partially successful. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so what, are, what, have you, what have you got, Dave? What were you reading? I was reading a couple of pieces by Jeffrey Baraclough and C.P. Fitzgerald. Okay. And I've got uh, this three-volume book called China. Well, I don't know what the three volumes are called. But this, the volume I'm reading is called China from the Opium Wars to the 1911 Revolution. And the next volume is China from the 1911 Revolution to Liberation. So I've started with the Volume two, the previous one is the Opium Wars and before. Um, so volume two uh, has got us covered to 1911. Um, this is a 1977 book. So there's some stuff where they say, at the present state of research, not much is known about this. And I'm like, uh-oh, I don't, <laughs> I don't have any other research besides this one. And the names are all wrong, correct? Uh, yeah, yeah, they're a little more into... so. There are two types of uh, transliteration, right? There's Pinyin and there's Wade Giles. So Wade Giles is like more, it looks more beautiful to our eyes, I guess. But um, the Chinese government went for Pinyin. So modern translation, all you transliteration, all uses Pinyin, which I think is like, um, you know, the Q is a CH and the ZH is a J. And so... Um, this way, this one seems to be more, this one seems to be kind of pinyin based. So it's not the TS or the TS apostrophe or those kinds of things. Nonetheless, we apologize in advance for my horrific pronunciation and the, yeah. errors, the errors I'm about <laughs> to make. Uh, you know, I have, uh, I have trouble too with like the I because some of, sometimes I think the I is a like, like an I like E and sometimes it's like. Uh, so I, I also, I have to, he- I have to hear some of these, uh, these names pronounced. I have to find a place where they say them. Um, oh, there's also one other thing I wanted to mention. There's a video, I think it's on YouTube, but like, I think it aired on Chinese television and I think it's called something like the coming of the great Re- rebellion or the passing of the girl. I'll, I'll, I'll look up the exact title in English, but it kind of enacts this period, Dave. And it's just, it, it's it's enacted in a really interesting way because it's not a documentary exactly and it's not fictionalized, but it's sort of, it's scenes. So it assumes you already know the history, but uh-huh. it sort of shows you what things looked like. Um, okay. I feel like it would be a good tool if you were teaching it, you know, mm. to have people watch. And I assume that's how it's used in China because it's a Chinese production. Um, and yeah, lots of Yuan Shikai and some of the other characters. And it's just like the person comes on screen and they show the little title of who, of who they are. And, and, but the, but it's vignettes, it's very short little vignettes, but it was cool for me to watch. Cause as I was reading the book, I was, th- I had watched the, the film without much 
context. <laughs> so, so I was having a hard time making sense of what I was seeing. But reading it after, you you remember who those those faces were and who those people were. Okay. So yeah, you can kick us off. Okay. Well, it, this series is is not just uh, you know the steps to World War One. It also seems to be uh, revolutions around the world. So we can do a little comparing and and contrasting after. Uh, going back a little bit, China had its reformers in the 1860s and 70s. There was a movement for self-strengthening. Uh, the idea was to adopt Western technology. Again, the technology without too many of the ideas. We don't want to be infected by those. 1894-95, uh, their defeat uh, in a war against Japan was catastrophic. But it also contributed to reform by provoking a, a new, for China, uh, nationalist response, very intense nationalist response. And these Chinese nationalists were, uh, surprisingly to me, they were really stirred by the Boer War. Uh, I didn't realize, you know, to what degree they were paying attention to worldwide events, but apparently the Boer War had a real impact on, on Chinese reformers, mostly for the David and Goliath theme. But these people were even more impressed by the Russo-Japanese War. So we've seen that in other revolutions, but uh, the, the words electrifying effect come up several times. The Russo-Japanese War had an electrifying effect throughout Asia. And Dr. Sun Yat-sen uh, said, we regarded the Russian defeat by Japan as the defeat of the West by the East. We regarded the Japanese victory as our own victory. So I find that interesting. I, you know, you would think that they would hate Japan for having humiliated them over Korea, but it really was for Asia. It really was electrifying. Like you said, it was just like, they're not invincible. Uh, right. Yeah. So this new nationalism was rooted in the uh, small but wealthy and cultivated middle class. They resented Western domination. The reforms they were advocating were intended uh, largely to give themselves a greater share in government and in business. It had far less impact on the peasants, the vast majority of the population, of course. Uh, and as we've seen elsewhere, Mexico particularly, middle-class reformers avoided the question of land reform. Uh, it was mentioned in uh, Sun Yat-sen's 1905 program, but only in the vaguest terms. <laughs> and that and that's another sim a similarity to Mexico, right? Everybody has right. a plan. In China, they're programs. So yes. you publish your program. <laughs> yes. So these guys, I, I think we can safely describe them as uh, liberal, although I, I wouldn't go too far because they're not quite Western liberals. Yeah, it's not the reference. None of the reference points are the same, right? It's not like they need the separation of church and state as a big deal to them. Or no, no. But in terms of, you know, moderate reforms being advocated yeah. and reforms which will benefit, you know, the middle class, yeah. you know, that's true. So just to recap from uh, previous episodes, the real ruler of China for much of this period was Sishi, uh, the Dowager Empress. So when the, the Tongzhi Emperor died in 1875 without a son, 
his mother, Sishi, nominated her nephew, Zaishan. He was the second son of Prince Yishuan and Sishi's younger sister. So I'm keeping it in the family. And this was a break with convention, but Sishi had a plan. The boy she picked was only three and a half years old. So she intended to rule as regent for as long as she possibly could. So the boy, uh, Zaishan, her nephew, became Guangzhou Emperor, meaning uh, glorious succession. In 1889, uh, this boy was now of age to marry, and Sishi chose his wife for him. Uh, she chose her own niece. She also chose all of his concubines, and by that means, you know, retained control. Officially, she was retired, but she continued to advise the young emperor. And Chinese officials got, you know, wise to this fairly quickly, and they often bypassed him and sent their reports directly to the Dowager Empress. And eventually, two sets of Grand Council memoranda were created, one for the emperor and the other for the Empress Dowager. Uh, <laughs> this is interesting. I wonder how <laughs> historically the emperor is never that involved or was the emperor heavily involved in running business? I guess the previous three were, eh? The, the I think it it depends on the degree to which he wants to. He's in right. the Forbidden City. He's right. at the mercy of the doorkeepers. Yeah. I mean, he can only act on what he can find out. And if you just wait and take what is handed to you, you're going to be cut off from a lot of information. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's such a ritualized, mm -hmm. like it's such a ceremonial ritualized position, right? Like everything is so, like where he sits, how he moves, what he wears. Oh, gosh, yeah. 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 So the war with Japan in 1894, disaster. Uh, there was more humiliation in 1897 <clears throat> when Germany seized Qingdao. I hope I'm saying that right. Uh, if you are not Chinese and you have ever had imported Chinese beer, it's possible you've run into the green bottles with the label Tsingtao. But that's actually Qingdao, and I think the Germans started the brewery there. Yeah, Pro probably within minutes of taking over. <laughs> <clears throat> so uh, after these disasters and humiliations, the emperor came to believe that reform was necessary and he wanted to learn from the Japanese example. That's you know, not entirely surprising. So in 1898, he began the 100 Days Reform. It was a series of sweeping changes in the political, social and legal areas. Now, you've heard the expression too little, too late. Well, the 100 Days Reform was too much too soon, especially for conservative officials educated in uh, neo-Confucian uh, ideas. Many of them were either confused or horrified by the, 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 the scope of the change, and many of them appealed to Sishi. <laughs> so she decided, okay, I'll put a stop to this, and she chose to launch a coup against her own nephew. So the Empress Dowager had General Ronglu's army. They were armed with uh, modern firearms and artillery. Meanwhile, the emperor could rely on Kang Yuwei and his reformist allies. Uh, both sides appealed to Yuan Shikai. 
because he led one of the most modern armies in China. Yuan had been sent to uh, Korea in the late 1870s to train Korean troops. In 1885, he became imperial resident in Seoul. He was more than an ambassador. He, actually, he was supreme advisor to the Korean government. He was recalled just before the war with Japan. Very fortunate for him because he avoided the humiliation of the defeat. Uh, like you, you just advised these. <laughs> you just advised this army into a total uh, loss. Well, yeah, yeah, but it, the the humiliation and, and the the shame of the disaster did not stick to him. He got out just before. Uh, Li Hongshang made him commander of the first new army in 1895, and Yuan Shikai established a training program to modernize the army, and that meant that he was in touch with many, many young, uh, you know, future officers and earned their loyalty. So, as I say, both sides were courting him. When the reformers approached him in 1898, Yuan insisted that he was loyal to the emperor, but he avoided giving a direct commitment. And he then went to meet General Rong Lu, the Empress Dowager's guy. And we don't know what was said. There's no record of their meeting. But you can guess what they said by what happened the next day. Rong Lu's troops entered the Forbidden City at dawn and they forced the emperor into seclusion. So you don't think it was a chat about the weather? Uh, <laughs> uh, fairly clear that they got <laughs> the, green, the green light from Yuan agricultural um, quotas <laughs> confucian philosophy no no uh, yuan's reward was to be made governor of shandong uh, province so when the boxer rebellion broke out he suppressed the boxers uh, he sided with the pro foreign faction at court along with li hongshang uh, general ronglu and prince ching when Sisi declared war on the foreign powers, that put them in a position now where they either had to follow her and reverse themselves or choose another course, which Yuan and some other governors did. They simply ignored her declaration of war. And his army, named the Right Division, uh, massacred tens of thousands of people in an anti-boxer campaign. So helping the foreigners and massacring their own people. In 1902, he was made minister of Beiyang. Uh, it was a combination of the regions of Liaoning, Hebei, and Shandong. Uh, obviously, the foreigners like him. Uh, he successfully obtained numerous loans to expand his uh, Beiyang army into the most powerful army in China. Yes. Um, so a little bit about um, the reform, the note from uh, <laughs> the note from Chesneau's book. Uh, he says basically that this the, the reform plan uh, that, that the court have has here, you know, where with Yuan Shikai uh, playing an increasingly powerful role. It comes from the court. Right. So they're trying to strengthen the monarchy which means it doesn't please the people that want to go farther than the monarchy and want a republic, for example. Um, and it, But it's also enough to estrange the conservatives and, and the vested interests. So Chesno says the reform, which had been devised by the dynasty as a way to salvation, 
became instrumental in its downfall. I also mm. found uh, found the film that I was talking about. It's called The Beginning of the Great Revival. It's from 2011. Uh, it's also tight, known as the <clears throat> the founding of a party. So the so the beginning of it is 1911, and it ends in 2020. I mean, it, 1911 ends in 1921 with the Communist Party's founding Congress. So history is all, of course building up to the main event, which is the founding of the Communist Party, according to this film. Well, we've <laughs> but, seen you know, this. We've seen this in a number of other revolutions. The reformers have a fairly uh, mild agenda, but then they get disappointed, or yeah. uh, you know, their movement is stolen or or crushed or blocked, and they go more radical thereafter. Yeah, exactly. So um, at night, <clears throat> sorry. Oh. Uh, I was just going to say, I'm look, I'm trying to figure out who played Yuan Shikai because they're, oh yeah, Chow Yun-Fat uh, is the actor that plays oh, Yuan yeah. Shikai. So he's a pretty, he's in a lot of um, uh, action movies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. John Woo, he, he, you'll usually see him with a pistol in each hand, you know, doing all kinds of bullet time tricks. But in this case, he was, he was Yuan Shikai. So there. <laughs> <laughs> So in 1905, <clears throat> acting on Yuan's advice, the Dowager Empress Cixi issued a decree ending the traditional Confucian examination system. And that was formalized in 1906. So huge change here. No more exams to get into the civil service. And that's centuries old. She ordered the Ministry of Education to implement a system of primary and secondary schools and universities with state-mandated curriculum modeled after the educational system of Japan in the Meiji period. Yeah, so this is a far-reaching educational reform. So one uh, reformer, uh, Zhang Jidong, he wrote a book called The Exhortation to Study in 1898, (laughs) Uh, criticizing the I I you know, I I would like to I would like to put out a book called the Exhortation. It's a great title to my students. <laughs> <laughs> um, criticizing the overemphasis on literature and the formalism of the exams. Uh, the new exams that they have in in their uh, system are based on the history of China and information on foreign countries. So the exam always used to have a thing called an eight-legged essay. I'll, I will I will definitely be looking up how that works. Maybe I'll assign an eight-legged essay in one of my classes at some point. Good luck. Um, and remember, the whole the whole point of everything in the uh, education system in China was the exam. So all the academies all over the country were based on preparation for the exam, um, and they were kind of separated from the government that actually administered the exam. And so the exam prep academies are the ones that are transformed into schools. You already have this infrastructure of, of academies everywhere. And this is based on what Yuan Shikai did in Shandong. So they have a system geographically based. So elementary schools are in the districts, secondary schools are in the prefectures, and each province has a college. Financing comes from provincial govern- governors and gentry who are both enthusiastic about it. So the provincial uh, level, they embrace modern education. By 1909, China has 100,000 modern schools, uh, although quality is, of course, uneven. Zhang Zhidong also encourages Chinese to go abroad for study. 
There are 271 foreign Chinese students studying in foreign countries in 1902. There are 15,000 in Western countries by 1907. And out of curiosity, I looked up the current figure, which apparently was something like 700,000 in 2019 and went down to 350,000 in 2020. A lot of those are actually here in Toronto, I would say. Mm. There's several thousand in, in Toronto, I think. Um, many are on, in this period, in provincial scholarships, um, which is a real but incomplete modernization of education, which, uh, according to Chesno et al., and it says, instead of contributing to the restoration of government power, the new intellectuals swelled the ranks of the opposition. Oops. Mm. Right. So that always happens. Right. Yeah. So in, in addition to educational reform, there's military reform also provincially varied. And remember, going into the military reform, what we have the following military groups. We have the Manchu banners, whose job is to protect the dynasty. We have the Army of the Green Standard, who are kind of like auxiliaries, more like police. And Chesno describes them at this time as being in the last stages of deterioration. Corruption, collusion with bandits, gambling, and opium made them all but useless. The officers, who were supposed to be literary scholar exam uh, passers, <laughs> they, in practice, their talents seem to be confined to archery, sword play, and shot putting. Mm. Which is, you know, I guess you could do worse as a military officer, but they had a higher expectation of their ability to do modern <laughs> modern uh, war which none of those skills really help you much with artillery and uh, right. rifle battles uh regional armies uh there are also regional armies that were constituted to fight against the taiping rebels remember those episodes from the 1860s um zhang guofan li hongjiang zuo zongtong's uh armies all professional soldiers with semi-modern equipment, but they're kind of tied to their leaders, right? And there are new armies, like you mentioned, Yuan Shikai's or Zhang Jidong's. Um, they had similarly loyal to their commander's kind of structures. Um, the goal of the reform was to disband the army of the Green Standard, adopt <laughs> Western training methods, abolish traditional military exams, and create modern military academies, uh, division between active and reserve troops, but it's still provincially based. So mm. among several advanced armies, Yuan Shikai's is the most advanced. He has six divisions in the Northern Army. Um, and Shesno says they had modern equipment, Japanese instructors and officers of high quality. It was an army of personal loyalties whose officers were devoted to Yuan Shikai and threw in their lot with his. Later, they became warlords, prime ministers or presidents of the Republic. So he's the... He's the finishing school <laughs> yeah. for the future warlords. He's basically the PhD program for warlords. Or the school, um, school of the Americas. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, trying to centralize the army, however, just was not a non-starter. All these, the most powerful armies were all loyal to their local commanders. So they're not going, they're not, they're not buying <laughs> it. They're not having it in terms mm -hmm. of centralizing the army. Um, so it remains in this provincial structure, which is going to have some pretty serious mm -hmm. implications mm -hmm. uh, 
fairly soon. Um, there's administrative reform as well. There's, you know, the reform includes the announcement of a really long, drawn out constitutional process with an incredibly limited suffrage. So you've uh, heard this story before. In Shandong, where Yuan Shikai is from, there's 119,000 voters in a population of 38 million. Uh, in Hubei, there's 113,000 uh, voters out of 34 million uh, people. The revenue reform is not going so well because all the revenue is going to the West, <laughs> right? Um, mm. The unequal treaties have siphoned off most of the revenues. The custom rev customs revenues are taken directly and deposited directly increasingly in Western banks. Uh, the railways that are being built are all built with foreign loans that then have to be paid back. There's the boxer indemnity and all the previous indemnities, which take more than the available revenue <laughs> to the government in a year. Uh, but there's infrastructure being built, steam navigation ports, coal mines, iron mines, factories, uh, the export profile changes. So tea and <coughs> silk became relatively less important and new products like eggs, soybeans and vegetable oils appeared. For imports, China is importing 40% of total value of imports is still cotton, yarn and fabric. So that's working out well for Britain, Britain and America, I would say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Foreigners still controlled all transportation, whether of funds or goods between the Chinese open ports and the customer or supplier countries. There's also some national enterprises. There are new banks, private <laughs> businesses, the overseas Chinese business community in Japan, in the West, but also in Southeast Asia, places like Singapore, Western controlled colonies in Hong Kong, Macau, Shanghai. Mm -hmm. So there's all these new constituencies that are also being created by these reforms and they all have different positions on where china should be going I find the educational reforms interesting you know mm -hmm. getting away from preparing for the exam yeah, yeah which is what we do in ontario secondary schools now prepare <laughs> for the literacy exam so yeah we're, we're basically channeling 19th century china Yes, exactly. <laughs> high stakes exam. Well, China's gone back to high stakes exam too. So it's, I guess, I don't know. I don't know what the answer is. There's, there, there's a movement where like exams and grades and everything is wrong. Uh, you know, and and I, I used to have, I used to think that that was the answer, but now I think maybe. I've become a little less anti-grading and anti-exams, <clears throat> mm -hmm. uh, so I don't know where I am on that. Where are you on that now? Uh, I can't, from a student's perspective, I can't imagine not having some kind of grade or, or feedback. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, exams, I have mixed feelings. The exam forces you to study. That's why, that's what I like about it. So... You know, you 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 have to commit. You commit a whole bunch of stuff to memory so you can regurgitate on the exam. But you do remember some of that even after. Maybe not a ton of it, but <laughs> some maybe 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 more than just listening to a podcast while you wash dishes. I don't know. Who knows? <laughs> maybe 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 listeners can tell us what what what's better. Yeah. So this constitutional plan is modeled after uh, Japan. And Bismarck's Germany. 
Uh-huh. And the Constitution will uh, is scheduled to be issued by 1916, and there will be an elected parliament by 1917. Of course, this is still 1908, so... That's a long time. Yeah, there's time. There's time. Uh, on November 14th, 1908, the Guangzhou Emperor died. Very suddenly. Most people thought that he had been poisoned. And in this case, they were right. The conspiracy theory was correct in this case. Uh, a forensic examination on the emperor's remains uh, in 2008, so the centenary of his death, uh, revealed that the cause of his death was arsenic poisoning. The level of arsenic in his remains was 2,000 times higher than normal. And because it's so unpopular, the reform is so unpopular with both sides, he, there's too many suspects to... Oh, no, there's a pretty good suspect. Okay, all right, all right. (laughs) Because the day before his death, the Empress Dowager Sishi had already arranged the succession. Mm, That's a suspicious timing. (laughs) Yeah, you choose his successor the day before he dies, suddenly and unexpectedly. Yeah, so she chose uh, Aishin Jioro Puyi. Let's go with that. He, He is remembered as Puyi. Uh, if you've ever seen the film The Last Emperor, that's him. So Puyi was her grand nephew. And following her own personal tradition, Puyi is also three years old. So see, she had just turned 73. It looks like she's planning another long regency. And then lightning struck again the following day, November 15th. She was struck by a seizure and died. And the child was optimistically called Swan Tung, Swan Tung, extended rule. So, you know, may he rule forever, a long time. That's a, uh, that's a, that's a, quite a, quite a pickle, quite a new, quite a, quite an unexpected twist on the story. Yeah. So this is where, uh, I mean, I, I like examples like these. For when you get too caught up in, you know, social or economic trends. Mm -hmm. The inevitability of everything. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is two unexpected deaths following in quick succession leaves a huge vacuum. And all of these, uh, you know, plans are suddenly dashed. Uh, And I'm sure everybody at the time is wondering what the hell just happened and what's going to happen. So the Qing, this is the the Manchu dynasty, had adopted Chinese ways, but they retained many of their conservative traditions from centuries before. For example, no member of the imperial clan, nor any Manchu for that matter, could marry a Chinese. So they only married other Manchu. They distrusted Chinese ministers and officials. I suppose, given the you know the number of rebellions and uprisings against Manchu rule, that that's you know logical enough. But th- that that means that the, the dynasty was still alien, yeah. and that's particularly true in the south of China. So this constitution that they had promised, this one was too little, too late. Uh, Prince Chun the brother of the late emperor, was appointed regent for the three-year-old emperor. Uh, He was 
weak and incompetent. Prince Chun bitterly resented the treatment of his brother, and he couldn't take it out on Empress Cixi because she's dead, but he blamed it on the treachery of General Yuan Shikai. So the new regent's first act was to dismiss Yuan. Off with his head. He should have. This is one case where that, you know, traditional Manchu justice should have been uh, used. Yeah, he should have basically arrested him and locked him up or or taken his head. But he settled for dismissing him. Uh, And then the prince formed a cabinet. This is new. Uh, Ten of the 13 ministers were Manchu. Six of them were imperial princes. It's not a surprise that these moves did not inspire uh, the reformers with great confidence. The educated classes didn't didn't see much going on here that would benefit them. Yeah, there were quotas for government positions to in, that included like a certain number of Manchu. Mm-hmm. So the the locals didn't like that because it was vastly disproportionate to of course to their numbers. Yeah, yeah. Well, we've seen this in other cases, right, where the uh, we're going to create these organizations and 90% of the members will be from the nobility. Yeah. Yeah. Or or we're going to have a system of suffrage where the nobles get three votes and <laughs> yeah, so you know, t- yeah, middle I class guys get one and, and everybody else gets none. Yeah, the Persian Revolution had that. Yeah. So th- there were provincial as- <clears throat> assemblies. The government had basically been forced to agree to them in 1909. Uh, the provincial assemblies were elected on a very restricted franchise, so dominated by the landlords and the rich merchants. But, as we've seen elsewhere, uh, Russia I'm thinking of, the assemblies became centers of agitation for greater reform, for faster reform. So the government had to agree to advance the date of the new constitution to 1913 instead of 1617. Then they took out a loan from a consortium of foreign banks so that they could buy back the railways that had been built with private capital. Now, the use of foreign money to do this offended the nationalists, and the price offered to investors for their shares was too low. And on top of that, nobody trusted the government to manage an enterprise like this anyway. Yeah, the railway nationalization is a huge issue. I'll come Mm -hmm. back to it too, because the opposition breaks down as follows. There's a whole coalition of different interests in the movement against or i guess the movement for reform so the peasants and the gentry in the countryside there's still constant uprisings even after the boxer rebellion is crushed so there's an uprising in guangxi in 1903 there's rioting in jiangxi in 1904 By 1909, there's 113 uprisings in different places. There's 285 by 1911. So there's hundreds of of local uprisings. A lot of them have to do with just famine relief, taxation. There are taxation increases during periods of flooding and, and bad harvest. There's famines, local famines that kill lots and lots of people in this period. So the rebels are doing things like attacking granaries, uh, tax collectors, officers, and they take it out on the modern schools, too. Oh, yeah. There are secret societies that are still 
active and they're still anti-Manchu and want to restore the Ming dynasty. Um, Local gentry that don't support nationalization, uh, like you said, they don't support even taking back control of the railways from even at even if it means leaving them in the hands of Western imperialists. So there's one particular one, Zhang Jidong has a proposal to buy back the rights to the Hankou Canton Railway. Uh, but they, they also oppose the fact that you're borrowing money from these same imperialists to finance the nationalization, right? It's yeah. not like you're just declaring that it belongs to us now. Uh, so the gentry regarded the these railway proposals as an affront to their patriotism, mm-hmm. their provincial liberties, and their economic interests. Just a, just a word on, on what you said earlier, the uh, the floods, the bad yeah. harvests, the famines. Yeah. In Chinese history, that's a clear sign that oh, the, yeah. the dynasty has lost the yeah. mandate of heaven. Yeah. yeah. Uh, sure. You know, we've seen this all over the place <laughs> for throughout Chinese history. So yeah. every revolt that leads to, you know, more trouble, every natural disaster just weakens the uh, faith in in the rulers. Yeah. So there's uh, two leaders. You mentioned Sun Yat-sen. We're going to get back to Sun Yat-sen. But uh, there's also a writer, a nationalist writer named Liang Qichao. Uh, He denounced the economic penetration of the treaty powers in China. He compared the history of China with that of other countries like India and Egypt, placing them in the context of European colonial expansion, according to Chesneau. Uh, In the port cities, there's a boycott in 1905 of American goods protesting immigration discrimination, which we've mentioned in our (laughs) episodes along those lines. Uh, In 1908, there's a boycott against Japan. Apparently, there was an incident called the Tatsu Maru incident where uh, China seized a Japanese ship full of smuggled arms and then Tokyo imposed all kinds of sanctions on China as a retaliation for them totally seizing this totally illegal (laughs) ship. (laughs) Um, uh, Sun Yat-sen, on the other hand, is very pro-Western. And uh, the pro-Western current of opinion that began with him, according to Chesneau, is an important ingredient of Chinese nationalism during the following decades. So Liang Qichao is writing uh, papers like uh, he has a journal called Public Opinion. He writes a paper called Renovation of the People. He goes and lectures in Hawaii and in the U.S. and Canada in 1900 and then 1903. He gra- He's an advocate of gradual change. He wants uh, basically the Japanese model, constitution, parliament with a powerful cabinet, independent judiciary, and getting the foreign countries to recognize China's rights by getting strong, but he sees this as all kind of a long-term, slow process of reform Mm. compared to Dr. Sun Yat-sen, who wants to do it a little faster. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, fascinating character. Uh, You know, obviously I was familiar with the name and and the basic outline, but digging deeper, I I found many interesting details. I I didn't know that he was... uh, known by at least six different names. <laughs> so uh, Sun Wen comes up frequently. But we'll we'll stick with uh, Dr. Sun Yat-sen, just to keep it familiar. So he's from the south, he's from the Canton area, and he started his reform by trying to interest the all-powerful viceroy, Li Hongshan, in, in his plan for reform. He sent a petition. Yeah, yeah. He asked nicely. 
born in 1866, at the age of 12, he went to live with his brother in Hawaii, attended English school, became a Christian, trained as a doctor in Hong Kong, practiced medicine in Macau, but he couldn't get a license from the Portuguese authorities. Um, he uh, submitted his petition, tried to get, you know, offering to help with the reform, uh, but he was ignored. And thereafter, he turned to, as you say, speedier methods, including revolution, with a group of his friends. Uh, there's a photo of him with three of his buddies at the College of Medicine, and they, they called themselves the Four Bandits. They founded the Revive China Society in 1894. They had a plot to seize government buildings in Canton. That failed, and Sun Yat-sen fled to Japan. And he traveled widely as well and spoke to expatriate Chinese uh, around the world. He became uh, a worldwide celebrity when he was kidnapped by the Manchu legation in London. I guess they wanted to shut him up. Uh, they were going to ship him back to China for execution. But he managed to sneak out a message to an old friend of his, Dr. Cantley, who had been a, a missionary doctor in China. The British authorities were notified and the Chinese legation were forced to let him go. Uh, it turned out to be great publicity for Sun Yat-sen and for the revolutionaries. He traveled between Hong Kong, Malaysia, Japan and America, raising money, recruiting. And the goal seems to have been to start a revolution in the Canton area. So there were several more attempted risings and they all had similar results. They were failures. There were three attempts in 1909 alone, but they were poorly organized. His uh, efforts were probably better directed at what he did, spreading revolutionary ideas among Chinese students, primarily in Japan. Uh, the, they were these these students who were getting a modern education. It was it was called drinking foreign ink. And as you said, thousands went to the U.S. and Europe, but Japan was closer and cheaper, and it seemed to be more attuned to what the Chinese needed. Now the government was worried about Western influence, particularly Republican America or France. We definitely don't want you getting ideas that you don't need a monarchy. But Japan also had an emperor. So, you know, maybe having having them study in Japan is not as bad. Uh, it didn't matter, though. Regardless of where they studied, these foreign students were influenced by reformist or even revolutionary ideas. Uh, the hopes for a constitutional monarchy in 1898, when Emperor Guangzhou came to power, uh, were dashed very quickly. There was also debate between monarchists and republicans with their respective newspapers. Uh, one of these papers, Min Pao, the, the People's Paper, was probably the most influential. By 1911, though, the revolutionaries, they, they really still weren't ready. Uh, there had been attempts to assassinate prominent Manchus, including Prince Chun, and they all failed. Um, basically, all these attempts achieved was to create some sympathy for the government uh, among more moderate reformers. There were some uh, key writers. You, you mentioned Liang. How, I'm gonna yeah, I think, the Q, I think the Q is a CH. I think. I think. 
Okay. So it's you mentioned so it's, Liang. It's spelled for listeners. Uh, wh- whether you guys know Chinese or not, you can confirm. But I I understand. I took an eight week class. I, I'm an authority on the Chinese language. Too. <laughs> <laughs> well, more than I am. Yeah, I know. I, I took a night school eight week uh, class in Chinese. So, uh, the it's Q I C H A A O. So I pronounce that Qi Chao. I don't know. I hope. Yeah, I the hope Qing Dynasty is spelled with a Q. Yeah. Uh, there was also Yan Fu who translated uh, Huxley, Adam Smith, Herbert Spencer, John Stuart Mill, and Montesquieu. Uh, There was Lin Shu, who had an incredible ability. He could listen to a friend read aloud a literal Chinese translation of a foreign novel, and then he could write out a translation in elegant classical Chinese. He did this for for over 160 books, by Daniel Defoe, Charles Dickens, Alexander Dumas, uh, Victor Hugo, Walter Scott, uh, Cervantes, uh, Ibsen. That, that's pretty incredible. That's a cool superpower. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, together, these writers argued that China had to modernize, had to embrace nationalism, competition, and struggle. So along with the classic Western literature and and philosophy, they absorbed some pretty strong strains of social Darwinism, unfortunately. So So, like the Young Turks too, yeah. Yeah, yeah, again. Uh, Sun Yat-sen formulated the three people's principles, three being a very significant number, obviously. People's nationalism, people's democracy, people's livelihood. The first one, the people's nationalism, was anti-Manchu as well as anti-foreign. Probably more anti-Manchu, actually, than anti-foreign. But Yeah. <laughs> the uh, people's democracy envisioned five powers, executive, legislative, and judicial, plus traditional Chinese examinations and censorship. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. The third was more controversial at least it it still is in a sense the people's livelihood because historians are debating whether sun meant socialism or if he was borrowing an idea from an american named henry george uh an urban centered notion of a single tax on land which would take into account the future value of the land so as to restrict speculation it, uh, Sun did not envisage wholesale land redistribution. He was concerned for the peasants and their food supply, but <laughs> we've seen yeah. this before too, haven't we? Well, it's a, a couple of notes. One mm-hmm. is uh, the Chesno book calls it socialism, you know, and they call, they say socialism or people's livelihood, but they also mention Henry George. And Henry George and the land tax is interesting because it is a Let's say that it's a tool which, if applied in North America, would be fairly transformational in terms of uh, housing, right? And there's a there's a writer, Michael Hudson, who I'm going to use in when we talk about World War One and Two. He's an econom economic historian, and he's given some lectures about la- the la- the idea of a land tax. And the idea is like, if you have what we have now, is we have 
house prices that keep going up, right? So, mm. and then that's passed on to tenants who rent. And that's because the value of the land, because you can continuously extract more and more rent, uh, the value of the land keeps going up and the value of the more, you know, the amount of mortgage that you can get on it keeps going up. So the banks ultimately capture most of this money. And Henry George's idea, Henry George saw this even then. So Henry George's idea was just if if you tax all of that extra money, it's going to keep the prices low and that money will go to the government rather than to the banks because it's going to go somewhere right Mm. so it's like how do you share that value of continuously rising uh land you know continuous like highly valued land well you can either give it all to the banks and make them continuously more wealthy and powerful or you can give it to the government which can then presumably redistribute it if they choose to <laughs> which is another question so anyway that's a little financial note about <laughs> about Sun Yat-sen's principles nationalism democracy and socialism or, li- or people's livelihood uh, Chesno says this <laughs> incredibly <laughs> harsh assessment he says this astonishing program ignored all the basic problems facing the country the agrarian question, peasant unrest, the threat from abroad, and the resistance put up by the traditional structures to all necessary change. But Sun Yat-sen's prestige and his authority in politics were not based on his intellectual superiority. The weakness in his ideology counted less than his optimism, his unshakable faith in the future of the country, and his conviction that the Chinese could make such rapid progress that they would establish a modern republic from one day to the next. Impatient young students were drawn to these magnificent visions rather than the slow advance of the historical process stressed by Liang Qichao. For 10 years, Sun Yat-sen tried to speed up the course of history. Yeah, and and we've seen <clears throat> similar things in some of the other revolutions. I'm thinking of Mexico, mm-hmm. uh, particularly, where you have this, uh, you know, people who grew up in cities uh, making simple solutions for the countryside with a mixture of uh, ignorance and yeah. paternalism, right? Like yes. you peasants, just settle down. We'll we'll take care of it. Make sure you have something to eat, okay? Don't worry yeah. about land. Don't yeah. don't worry about land or anything. Yeah, we'll it's we'll not... take care of that for you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So Doctor Sun set up a, a secret society in Tokyo called the Tongmenghui, uh, the United League. He himself went to Hanoi. And from there, he tried to f- to foment more uprisings in southern China. Yes. So there are eight rebellions with a lot of support from the secret societies between 1907 and 1911. And again, Chesno is pretty harsh uh, in his assessment. He says uh, the failure of the rebellions in which many brave men died to no purpose was due to faulty organization. It was also due to the violent suppression carried out by the imperial authorities. So the biggest um, the biggest uh, rebellion was in Canton in uh, April 1911, and that one ended with a big massacre, which is commemorated in a memorial there to the 72 martyrs. Um, Shizno says that Sun Yat-sen's United League was ill-suited to the purpose. The fusion of its different elements was incomplete. The authority and resources of both Sun and his party were worn out by a series of abortive plots. 
Sun Yat-sen was neither a political thinker nor an administrative organizer, but a man of ideals with a temperament of an exceptional kind. He carried a heavy responsibility for the direction taken by the revolutionary movement before 1911. He discredited the concepts of Liang Qichao by his exaggerated support of anti-Manchu and pro-Republican feelings. In encouraging the young militants to be satisfied with a radical utopia, he produced an enduring cleavage between the revolutionaries' ideas and the real situation in China. So, mm. Again, pretty harsh. I, I also, I gather that uh, Chesno, I guess we'll find out when we get to that, to the next book. I gather that Chesno is a real supporter of, uh, you know, Mao and the Chinese communists. So it's that when you have that, you kind of look at everything that happened before as, you know, why they didn't succeed <laughs> right it's like yeah they they're they goldilocks kind of thing like the it was too utopian he didn't have a good plan and he wasn't a good organizer and you know obviously mao and the communists had a better plan were better organizers <laughs> and uh, were more practical so well that's the word that keeps coming up right yeah. organize yeah exactly i don't think it matters what sources you read you're going to come across that word over yes. and over and over again, especially when they're talking about Sun Yat-sen. Yat yeah, that's right. Yeah. And also, uh, Canton is the focus of many revolutionary activities, uh, partly because it was his home and the home of many of his closest followers. Uh, one of the most prominent of his activist workers was Huang Xing, who had connections with many men in military service. Some of these young officers had trained at the Japanese Military Academy in Tokyo, and many of them were exposed to revolutionary literature. So there's a similarity with uh, Turkey from, from both sides, right? The, the reformers are, are getting their ideas through to young officers, and the government know they need a more modern army, and for that they need educated officers. But the more the young officers are educated, the more... They're influenced by reformist and revolutionary ideas. And like Turkey, it's these young educated army officers who are going to turn out to be the real danger to the conservative reactionary government. So we're finally getting to the actual revolution, the real revolution, which began by accident. Uh, on October 10th, 1911, there was an explosion in a house in the port of Hankau which was a treaty port, uh, there was a Russian concession there. So the house blows up and the police go to investigate. And it turns out that the house was an arsenal and headquarters <laughs> of the local revolutionaries. Um, uh, bomb making is all leads to accidents, right? I mean, yeah, and maybe don't keep the bombs in the same building as your key documents because <laughs> papers were seized including a list of the members of the Tongmenghui. Uh, several officers of the garrison were on the list. And when these officers found out, you know, what had happened and realized where the investigation was going to lead, they decided to act. So they went at night to the bedroom of General Li Yuanghong, who was a loyal monarchist. But they went to the general's bedroom and at pistol point, they gave him a choice. Uh, you can lead the revolution or you can die. <laughs> so this was not a planned insurrection, you know. Basically, that explosion forced these guys to go forward. Otherwise, they were they were dead. 
the general chose to lead. And by the 12th uh, of October, uh, Wu Chang, Han Kao, and Han Yang were all under revolutionary control. Chesno has a great summary. He says, thus, the revolt was prepared by revolutionaries, was carried out by the new army, and gave power to gentry of moderate to conservative opinions. Yeah, yeah, it was not part of the plan. You know, there was no uprising scheduled. It was just a spontaneous reaction by these young officers whose lives were in danger. But it set off a chain reaction. Uh, there were similar risings across the southern and western provinces. And yeah, it's important to note, this was the work of army officers, not civilians. So the revolution was off to a false start right from the beginning. So in the south, garrisons revolted. They set up independent administration. Uh, the idea was that these administrations could eventually federate when a republic was established. But, you know, again, uh, you, you said it earlier, they tended to think locally, provincially. Yeah. Uh, most of the transition was peaceful. You know, the dragon flag was lowered. Nobody was hurt. Uh, quite often, the provincial governors joined the revolution. It was very different in the West. Some of the provincial capitals uh, had Manchu garrisons who had been settled there for 250 years. But remember, they're, they're still seen as alien occupiers. In Xi'an, the capital of Shenxi, the Manchus there were systematically massacred. And that happened again in Chengdu. Uh, Manchus massacred, the viceroy was killed, and this was not uh, the work of the army. In, in the West, the revolution was led by the Society of the Elder Brethren, a secret society, very, very anti-Manchu, obviously. Yeah, so between October and November 1911, a whole bunch of provinces just put up the Republic flag. Um, Chesno says, as of 1976, not much is known about these provincial movements and why they declared so fast. But Hubei, Hunan, Yunnan, Shenxi, Jiangxi, Jiangsu, Zhejiang, Fujian, Sichuan, and Shandong all declare for the Republic. So basically <laughs> time to organize the counter-revolution, right? The court is going to strike. The empire has to strike back now. Yeah, and the north was quiet. Uh, the provinces closest to Beijing had suffered heavily when the boxer movement was put down. Uh, there was no d direct threat to the imperial court there. But if they were going to regain control of the south or, or even, you know, check the momentum of the rebellion, they were going to need the most modern elements of the army. And that meant that they needed Yuan Shikai. Oh, no. Yeah. They're calling him back. It was a pretty bitter pill to swallow. How and of course, coming back. <laughs> yeah, and of course, Yuan Shikai took his time. He knew that he was in the driver's seat. This reminds me of the uh, the mercenary general Wallenstein in the Thirty Years' War. You know, you get fired, and then the situation gets desperate, and they call you back, and you go, "Yeah, how do you like me now?" <laughs> Is that the guy that was played by uh, Charlton Heston? Uh, no, I don't think so. Okay. I don't think so. That's hmm. just some some group of mercenary. He's just some mercenary leader or something. A big, 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 big mercenary leader. Yeah. Um, 
So Yuan Shikai knows he's indispensable. He can set his own terms. And and it it's possible that he had a glimpse of the future and was already planning for it. So he presented his demands. I want to be both commander-in-chief and prime minister. And the dynasty didn't have much choice. So when Yuan Shikai returned to Beijing, it was basically as absolute master of the future of the Manchu dynasty. And he had no more loyalty for these people than he'd had for the Guangzhou emperor. And yeah, as you, as you pointed out, they, they should have cut his head off. They wouldn't be in this situation if they had. So Yuan Shikai took command of the army, moved south, and drove the revolutionaries out of Hankou and Hanyang. But then he stopped there. There's a conspiracy theory about this, right? So. It's, it's not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> it's what, what, yeah, by the end of November, it became known, widely known, that Yuan was negotiating with the rebels. He knew that uh, reconquering the South and the West wouldn't be easy. And he knew that it wouldn't be quick. It's possible that he feared Japanese intervention. Uh, it was also clear that the the great southern cities, particularly Shanghai and and Canton, had no more respect for the Manchu. They they would have to be retaken by force. Then you would have to you know purge a large number of people, yeah. you know massacre a large number of people. Uh, the only I guess other alternative was a a partition of China along the, the line of the Yangtze River, like two Chinas, north and south, which had you know had happened before. But nobody on either side wants that. So Yuan realizes that, but he's also thinking about Yuan Shikai uh, and his own position. Uh, the revolutionaries had improved their uh, situation by capturing Nanjing, the southern capital, on December 2nd. Negotiations with Yuan had been going on in Hankou, but they now shifted to the international settlement in Shanghai. On the 25th of December, Sun Yat-sen landed at Shanghai and went to Nanjing, where he was elected provisional president of the republic. I don't know what your sources say. Mine basically say that this was a face-saving gesture to give Sun Yat-sen some prestige. Yeah, so mine are basically like they couldn't agree on on who to put in, and he was the only one that could do it, kind of was a consensus. Figure. Yeah, but provisional president of the republic, you're basically a placeholder until we can decide what the government's going to look like. Exactly. Yeah. So it's just a temporary position. The, the, the fact is that the revolution that he had been planning and working towards happened without him. Uh, <laughs> he... He only learned of the 1911 revolution by reading a newspaper in Denver, Colorado. It took him three months to get home. And by the time he landed, you know, the issue's already basically been decided. Yeah. So everybody... It was, a, it was about three months of revolution that got them to that point, yeah. October to end of December, right? Yeah, so everybody knew that the outbreak of the revolution was not the one that he'd been planning, and he wasn't there to lead it. So while he and his associates had been conspiring to launch the revolution, and they they didn't had they hadn't really worked out where to steer it. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, and then the uh, another important thing was the foreign powers uh, that had increasingly determine what happens in China. They decided on neutrality, so they weren't going to support the regime like they did during the Taiping Rebellion. Right. Right. So a British minister in Beijing, John Jordan, he said they would not defend the dynasty. They didn't even advance alone to Beijing in the first three months, uh, in the last three months of 1911. On the other hand, Chesno writes, uh, the powers took advantage of the political confusion to tighten their control of the revenues from maritime customs, which were from then on were deposited in foreign banks. They also extended their jurisdiction over the Chinese population in the concessions by taking control of the courts, which until then had been under the imperial administration, such as the mixed court of the international concession in Shanghai. So the foreign the western powers continuously <laughs> just took advantage of it for themselves they didn't intervene uh and by the way the revolutionary government when they had their when they started in wuchang immediately cabled the consular corps in hankou promising that the future republican regime would recognize all the treaties and loans entered into by the manchu dynasty oh. the revolutionaries also promised to protect foreigners and their possessions in China. So uh -huh. that gives you a good sense of of the limited nature of the of the uh, revolutionaries' aims and who they were really trying to overthrow. Mm. So I guess we'll stop there for now, and in our next episode, we will cover the rise of Shiwan Shikai, the, who's just going to keep rising from this moment on, right? Mm-hmm. Until <laughs> until the fall of Yuan Shikai, which 